Welcome to Liberties Talk, the podcast of Liberties Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberties and the host of this podcast. More often than not, although on this episode of the podcast, um, the philosopher Martha Nussbaum joins our editor, Leon Wieseltier, for a conversation that's really about the relationship between the body and the soul. They use Martha's essay, which appeared in the most recent issue of Liberties and which is entitled On Not Hating the Body, really as a jumping off point for a broader conversation. I'm not going to say more about what the discussion is about because it speaks for itself. I will say, though, since I'm not actually in this episode, and I think that permits me to say, this discussion was fascinating and thrilling to listen to. It's a discussion between two kind of terrifyingly brilliant and learned people who disagree deeply about the fundamentals that they're discussing, and they disagree with such civility and mutual respect. Um, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Martha. Hi, Leon. It's great great to see you, my precious friend. Um, Really, uh, we have much to talk about, and what we're talking about is this very provocative essay that you just published in the new issue of Liberties called On Not Hating the Body, uh, which is an essay that ramifies in all sorts of directions, and you take it in all sorts of directions. And what I want to do, Martha, is I want to talk to you in the begin- a little bit about your claims in the essay, what mm-hmm. it's about. And then I've, I remember I still have three questions for you that I had the first time I read it, when you sent it to me. And I got very enthusiastic about it. And needless to say, I took it. (laughs) But um, the subject really, the largest way for me to frame the subject of this essay is that it's a philosophical reflection on our animality in some way. It really is. Mm -hmm. And not just because it deals with, it makes comparisons between our animality and the animality of what we call animals, mm-hmm. about which you've just finished a book. Uh, but it is a philosophical reflection on the sense in which we are animals of a certain kind and what the implications of our particular animality are. And one of the distinctions you draw, it's very powerful, between our animality and the animality of the animals, we'll just have to call them, uh, is that we are the only animal that experiences disgust, that has a certain emotional response to um, certain expressions of our corporeal being. And that, that response you describe as disgust, and you explain what you mean and so on. And I wonder if you could, if you could talk a little bit about your sense of us as animals and what the dis- what the distinction is because we you know we are animals we've known we, we've learned to think of ourselves as animals at least since Darwin you know the the, the 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 controversy about our animality was certainly settled by Darwin if not before probably with the Greeks too but still Darwin really but I want to know what your tell, talk about your view of our animality Martha. Well, I I think the first thing is that if you look at other animals, they're very intelligent, they're very clean, they do not like their feces, they cover them up, and they wash themselves and brush themselves. So 
they're, they, they don't just revel in their own shit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But what we do, which no animal does. Yeah. We only do that culturally, Martha, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but we, we, we try to deny that we're animals. I mean, you say it's settled, but I don't think in American culture it's settled at all. Mm-hmm. I think, of course, about 75% of Americans don't believe in the theory of evolution. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I grew up in a part of America that was really into body denial. Mm-hmm. What um, Franz Duval, the great primatologist, calls anthropodenial, denial mm-hmm. that you are an anthropos, which would be a species of animal. Mm-hmm. I mean, where I grew up, you had to wear white gloves when you went to a dance, and you had to mm. cro- you couldn't cross your legs because that was unseemly. You had to mm. cross your ankles. So there were all these ways of hiding the body, and it kept reminding me always of Gulliver's Travels, where Gulliver mm-hmm. likes to be understood not to be a smelly, hairy yahoo. And so, of course, his clothes help the Hulums, these, these horsey beings, understand him as not a yahoo. And then when he gets home, he can't stand to be with other human beings. So I think our animality is the smells and tastes and touches of the body. And it is, of course, connected to many things, both good and bad. It's connected to expressions of love and care. And I think during COVID, when we couldn't touch each other, that was one of the worst, (coughs) sorry, one of the worst things that we experienced. I know people whose parents died in the hospital and they couldn't hold them and touch them. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, we realized that that's actually that body is a very important part of really loving somebody. But often we like to deny that and think, oh, well, we're really pure spirits and we're immortal. And we'll, and so many philosophical theories have been built on this idea that we are basically and really an immortal soul that will just leave the bodily shell and have some other kind mm-hmm. of life afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I, I always thought that that was a little bit foolish. I didn't enjoy the white gloves. It's, it's one, one thing that led me to just throw away the lost culture I grew up in and seek Jewish culture because I thought of that as less denying. We don't have white gloves. We don't wear white gloves. (laughs) And I think Jewish culture doesn't deny the body as much. Mm. And uh, my my brother-in-law, who's also a philosopher, says, well, it doesn't deny it enough. And he thinks that the Wasserman were correct. But we have family arguments about that. But anyway, I think, you know, to deny that we are what we are is first of all just it's foolish yeah foolish foolish but it also leads to some pathological things so the first step in disgust is to be disgusted by feces urine and so forth and that it, it, it does no big harm but it still it's a denial of what we are and probably better off without it but then what all societies do which is really harmful is to choose a group of human beings as the animals. And then they subordinate mm-hmm. them and they say, oh, well, these people are hypersexual, right, right. hyperbodily, and then that's an excuse for subordinating them further. And actually, our university has a center in Delhi, and we have a comparative project on disgust, mm-hmm. where, you know, the Indian participants wrote about the caste hierarchy. We wrote about racism in the U.S. And also, by the way, disgust based on age, which is a mm-hmm. big thing. And so just by thinking these things through yeah. together, we realize that all societies have this in subtly different forms. Yeah, they make but, certain people dirty. 
they make certain people dirty, and then right. they say, because you're dirty. Right, just, we can't touch you, right. Political rights or whatever. Right, right. And actually, racism against Black people in mm-hmm. the South is so similar to the caste mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Not drinking the same water, mm-hmm. not sharing the same swimming pools. Right. Uh, they're Contamination, right, yeah. But it's an idea of being contaminated by right, the body. Right. And of course, right. it's really your own body that you don't mm-hmm. want to be contaminated. Right, 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 by. right. Martha, I want to ask you, I'm not going to make a, an argument in defense of your white gloves because you had to wear them and I didn't. <laughs> and um, and I, 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 I share your pain about the white gloves. But I do want to ask, we have been taught for a very long time a certain historical narrative uh, about um, which we regard as cultural and even moral progress. And the narrative is, to take a concrete example, from certain historians that the evolution of table manners and more generally of manners represented some sort of progress. And beyond concrete questions like that, we have also been taught by Dr. Freud, most notably, that civilization is to a certain extent, if not the foolish denial of certain, of let's call them the human juices, certainly a certain kind of management of the human juices and distance from the human juices that Freud called repression. And we think of repression as a pejorative term. Freud did not. Freud (laughs) thought that repression was the foundation of civilization. And I'm wondering, and you are someone who operates, I mean, you're a creature of high culture. You have high cultural tastes. Um, and how, how, what is, in your mind, what is the relationship between, on the one hand, the enthusiastic acceptance of our corporeality, uh, even, you know, reveling in it, as you say, and on the other hand, this idea that actually the repressions and sublimations and not, not, not evil denials, morally neutral denials, like the white gloves, they were not, nobody was oppressed because of the white glove except for you and your hands. <laughs> But um, but between that whole tradition that we need to get further away from this so as to create, et cetera, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about this? Yeah. Well, first, first of all, historically, it's not really correct. That is to say that in most, if you look at it linearly, earlier societies had a lot more rules and taboos about the management of the body, even the we mm-hmm. ourselves yes. today. So uh, it's not really a very good narrative to, to go with. But, I mean, if you think about Elizabethan England, there was probably no culture that was more filthy and foul. Right. So they just uh, urinated and defecated in the right. palace rooms. When it got too smelly, they moved to a different palace. So that was certainly not part of that the thesis of Norbert Elias, that the right. progress towards civilization. I think that really... When we rebel in our corporeality, it needn't be stupid and undisciplined. Mm-hmm. Animals are not stupid and undisciplined. Some animal creatures mate for life, others don't, but they have a, a system and, and it's taught mm-hmm. to the young and so forth. And, you know, if you think about the arts, dance is a wonderful art. And it's the art of mm-hmm. developing the body mm-hmm. and creating form and emotional expression with the body and of course music does the same thing as Schopenhauer said music is the most he thought of it as the most bodily of the arts because he didn't really talk about dance 
But, you know, so the body is not stupid. So to revel in our body is perfectly compatible with, and in fact, it, it's under the underpinning of the creation of the best art. Mm-hmm. I think opera is one of the highest forms of art because it has all the, the bodily forms, the use of the voice, the use of the different musical instruments to create rhythm. And of course, it has, has dance as well. So I think people, when they think of the body, they think of it as stupid and dirty. And of course, that's just an expression of their body hatred. So I think when we're more civilized, we are more interested in expressing form and meaning with the body. Animals do that in their own way, and we don't even fully understand how, let's say, the whale, the song of whales expresses meaning, but we do understand that it's very rich and it has a complicated syntactic structure and that it changes all the time and so forth. And elephant song, we really don't understand at all because it's too low for Mm -hmm. us to hear it. So I think, you know, many animals have forms of song and forms of approximating to dance. And so the body, in short, can create a lot of ways of expressing meaning, order, love, connection. But the myth was that we can only do that when we're sitting still, like disembodied. Right. The body has nothing to do with it, right. But the body has nothing to do with it. And it's right, just, right. well, as Socrates says in the Phaedo, you, you don't get disturbed by sight or hearing or anything else like that. And you just thought goes off right. itself by itself. Right. And that was, that was the ideal that Plato promulgated and that we gradually, gradually took in. Now, not everyone. I mean, Aristotle, I think, is much more complicated because he does think that we're in mattered forms, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. although he thought that the intellect was different. Exactly, was different. yeah. But then, and then even the later Platonists, you know, like Plotinus and mm-hmm. Tark, Porphyry wrote one mm-hmm. of the best works about animal intelligence mm-hmm. that we've ever had. Mm-hmm. So the history of philosophy is, as we've discussed often in working on the piece, a real mixture And religious philosophy, too. Some Christians were very pro-Plato. Others were more involved with Aristotle and thought much more of the body. So their history is complicated. Well, let me pause pause there because I'm going to get back to what you're saying, which touches on something that's a very deep theme. I remember, I think you're absolutely right that certainly in philosophy, but not just in philosophy, more generally in sort of the common conception of how we work, call it, you know, if it's the ghost in the machine or whatever you want to call it, but um, there, a very important correction in our understanding of how we express ourselves and who we are was established in the, let's say, in the last hundred years by philosophers and thinkers who recognized the importance of the body in our, in our expressions. I remember once this happened to me, I was I was watching, I was at a piano recital. I forget which pianist it was, um, it, but given what I'm about to say, it was almost certainly a Russian. And he was playing very, very passionately. And I noticed, I thought to myself, well, he's not playing with his fingers, he's playing with his body. And mm-hmm. I began to notice the participation of the body, the tension of them. I and he was just sitting mm-hmm. on the bench but he wasn't just sitting on the bench. His body was in the whole, the whole thing. So, and I remember thinking, that's right. There is the, our embodiment, is, it penetrates deeply into high 
cultural and intellectual products and creations. Uh, and I remember when I was a young man, when I first read Merleau-Ponty, who was very important in, you know, in, in insisting that if you want to understand perception and the activities of the mind, you have to understand corporeal life, mm-hmm. that, that our perspectives are corporeally determined in some significant way. So my question to you is, accepting this correction and your essay and your book will be, and your work will be part of this larger correction in restoring the body to pride of place in our understanding of human expression. My question to you is, does one, that pianist who was playing at the piano, he was playing with his whole body, but the notes that he was producing and the melodies that he was playing and the feelings that he was communicating, and even the ideas, I forget what he was playing, but as you know, there are pieces that have ideas, um, were not embodied. They were not, they, I don't see, that they cannot be meaningfully described, at least by my lights, as corporeal. And so my question to you is, um, we can reject that whole tradition of the immortality of the soul and all that stuff because there's a lot of superstition in that, even though there's a lot of argumentation. But, but wouldn't it be better, to not better, couldn't we say that it's a kind of division of human labor, that the body plays more of a role than we knew, than we were willing to recognize because of disgust and other things, but that to do away entirely with what let's call an idealist understanding of human expression would also give away too much. Well, let me first say that I think your narrative is a little too optimistic because you, you talk about continental philosophers and I think they were onto the importance of the body earlier. But in when I was in graduate school, mm. dominated by English oh, yeah. Puritanism and right. uh, you know, even to talk about the emotions, yeah. write about them. And even when you're working on Aristotle, you were not supposed to talk about love and friendship. Right. I remember a woman who was writing her dissertation on Aristotle on friendship. Of course, that's a topic to which he devotes fully two-fifths of the Nicomachean Ethics. Yeah. My thesis advisor said, oh, oh, well, she's just fallen in love. You know, yeah, right. no, that's right. Him, but she was talking about this messy topic. And there were very few people. Who or that was considered him. a literary interest, not a philosophical interest. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it was just considered embarrassing and yeah. female. Yeah. Right, and okay. So yeah. And, yeah. I mean, there were exceptions. And Bernard Williams was the one yeah. who encouraged me to write about emotions. There was also the wonderful philosopher George Pitcher, who mm-hmm. he was the first person who wrote an article on emotions for the Aristotelian Society, the, the high place of analytic yeah. philosophy in London. And George was an animal lover. And he's written a beautiful book about the two dogs that he and his partner had adopted. So, you know, this was slow in coming. And I think I was I encountered great resistance for mm-hmm. the work that I did on these topics. But, okay, so by now it's regarded as a philosophical topic. I want to differ with you about ideas because I think, you know, I'm a physicalist. Uh, I'm not a reductive physicalist. I don't think we can give specific um neurological accounts of this or that thought, because that would be to reduce something that's realized in many different ways in many different brains to something that we now would do much too simply and crudely. That's a big caveat, Martha. We'll get back to that. That's a big caveat. Everything we do is bodily. 
we can't get away from it. It is bodily. Now, I mean, I remember working on an article on sex work where people are saying, poo poo, it's awful to take money for the use of your body. Well, what am I doing? I'm taking money for the use of my body, producing these thoughts. What else is, would it be? It's not in some stratosphere someplace away from me. It's in my, it's in my body. I will insist on certain fundamental differences, but go ahead. Yes. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's in the brain. Now, I don't like the people who say, oh, now we can give an MRI of the brain and we can right. get specific reductive accounts because reduction is wrong because human brains realize the same thought in many different physical forms. So emotional reductivism is, has not panned out as a way of explaining emotions. But nonetheless, it's in there. I mean, it's, it's being done by the brain. And of course, we know that uh, as people decline in old age. And the, the, it's not, as Plotinus thought, he thought the thoughts were still in there. They just can't get out. But no, I mean, if you oh, have right. Alzheimer's, the thoughts are not there. They didn't just fly away to some other place. They're just not there. And so the body is not, it's not just a necessary condition of thought, it's the home of the thought. Well, you see, that's, it's interesting you say that because when I hear you talk saying that you're not a reductionist physicalist and you explain the sense in which you're not, you, 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 you introduce that as a, as a refinement of your position. I think it opens up the possibility of an entirely different position so that even if, I mean, I'm speaking crudely now, even if 99.9% of us is, let's just say, water, you know, is animal, is matter, let's use whatever, you know, corporeal, it's that 0.1% that, for me at least, is, is the human difference, and, and words like the soul and the self and all those other words for that distinction, uh, for personhood, call it what you want, refers to that tiny bit, but that, but since this is not a quantitative analysis, obviously, um, I find it very, I'm very, well, I welcome your correction of the um, radical idealists and the, you know, the, all these fairy tales about, on the other hand, I'm reluctant to think that because we must not deny the body and we must not only accept it, but even celebrate it, that we have to therefore do away with what we used to call the non-corporeal dimensions of human life. You know, we used to call it that, but I think that underrates the spectacular magnificence of the human brain and the rest of the body, the hormonal mechanisms and all the other things that go into it. I mean, now we can appreciate what a wonderful phenomenon that is. Yes. That we have these organs that are capable of these thoughts. And by the way, you say the human difference. I think it's clear now that most animals have, have their own point of view on the world. Mm -hmm. They have subjective awareness of things. And some of them have very, very subtle thoughts indeed. My but, dog certainly does. Yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think dogs are among the ones that we know best. And of course, that mm -hmm. helps us see that. But whales, we don't know very well at all, but we do know that there's a lot that's very complicated in their lives. And the ones we're getting to know better, like elephants, that, that the same is true. But, you know, I don't know why you want to say, to subtract the body from it. If you took away the body, I think you must agree that there wouldn't be Leon anymore, right? 
Yeah, that would be one reason to want it. But I mean, the the um, no, the re, the the I there's no point in even considering taking away the body. I mean, we are enmattered, mm-hmm. embodied. I mean, this I regard. I, I mean, this ob- is an obvious given. And philosophy, uh, for many centuries, it's like that old joke: "Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes?" I mean, they. I mean, you know, it was some of the de-emphasis of the corporeal looks crazy now. Yeah. Once we've fully developed uh, the, the 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 place of the corporeal in our sense of ourselves, in our in our image of ourselves, um, but you ask a good question. I mean, I think that. If everything, I, I guess one reason I don't want to commit everything we are to the body is because <clears throat> that would be committing everything we are to time. Because time, because the body is our experience of time in some way, and the body decays and disappears and dies and disappears. And the idea that we can do things that last beyond the body and not just as a consequence of historical circumstance or luck or anything, um, makes me think that those things are at least as precious as the transient things that we do, which well, are more connected to the body, you, et cetera, et cetera. The longing to leave something after yourself, after death, is I think the origin of a lot of these denials of the body. But mm-hmm. I want to say, sure, that's a fundamental human longing but yeah. what is it that we leave behind well it's whatever we whatever we leave it's got to be bodily we leave some people leave children some people also leave other things like books but i mean uh, when i think of it i think about of course first of all having lost my only child and that that was a very terrible thing yeah. but in you know in mourning her i wanted to leave something of myself right. as a, a kind of tribute. I, I thought of Cicero who said when his daughter died, he wanted to leave a monument and he spent the last days of his life going around trying to buy property to build this shrine for Tulia. So my shrine is my book on animal rights because she mm-hmm. was a lawyer for animal rights. I know. But that book is thoroughly physical. The ideas in it are thoroughly bodily ideas. So, you know, I, I, don't, I think it would be foolish to think that the only way we can persist in time and influence the future would be to be disembodied somehow. I don't get but that. But dear friend, I mean, when, when my father died, I had I did a similar thing. I wrote a long yeah, book. Well, I know, that's a great to book. Leave a, thank you, to leave a monument to him. But I would never think to say that in, that essentially, which is a tricky word, but that essentially um, my book is simply the paper that that it's printed on and the ink that's printed on. In other words, there does come a point where the fact that we can communicate, that we have to communicate non-material things in material ways becomes a little bit truistic. Yeah, but because, you, you, know, you say non-material things, but I, I think you're communicating something that took shape in your brain and got a very refined development in the brain because the brain is an amazing organ. It's not a crude organ. And it got developed there, and then you need to communicate it. And so you need to either speak it like Socrates or write it like Plato, whatever. But I Do you don't make a distinction. Do you make a distinction between the brain and the mind? 
Well, I want to say that the mind is the, as it were, the idea content that takes shape in the brain. But of course, so it's constituted by the brain. It's like the relation between form and matter. So I, I think Aristotle was right that each substance has a form and it's realized always in some sort of suitable manner. So I think of the ideas as the form and the part of the brain that realizes them as the matter that suitably realizes those ideas. So it's not reducible to particular brain molecules that are moving this way or that. That's where the non-reductionism comes in, but it is an enmattered form for me. Yeah, I, I'm not altogether persuaded that your non-reductionism really is non-reductionism, but one of the things that interests me about what you're saying now, and, and again, remember when you first sent the essay in, we talked about this and it was great. Um, I wondered to what extent the celebration of the body, of our enmatteredness, actually requires a materialist conception of life. And because it, it would seem from your remarks now that you're awfully close to that. My observation has been that a material, a purely material account of human life cannot account for some of human life's greatest, highest, and lowest moments for love and courage and ecstasy. And I don't know how to account for that solely in material terms, even though I will agree with you that courage in war is obviously expressed by a certain use of the body. And love of a certain erotic kind is obviously expressed by use of the body. And that ecstasy can result from physical experiences but there is a part of me that stubbornly, almost, you know, you might say platonically, mm -hmm. is um, really very stubborn, very reluctant to give up, to give up that, that, that dimension of non-materiality. Yeah, I see is that. Is that arrogant? Is that human well, arrogance? I, I, don't, I don't see why you feel the need to say that. I think it's just what you think, that the mere brain can't be enough. And I think... That's because you underrate it, is what I think. Well, no, but let's take the example of a painting. So if you, we look at a beautiful painting together, and one way to analyze the painting would be materially, physically, in terms of the pigments on the canvas. And you can even go further and analyze the pigments into the chemistry of the pigments. And you can discuss when colors are mixed, how the pigments mixed, and the, you, you can, I'm sure you'll get to a molecular analysis. When you've done all this, when you look back up at the painting, I don't believe you've given an adequate description or account of its beauty. I think that its beauty is something beyond its physical constitution that wouldn't be possible without its physical constitution because we'd have nothing to look at but that I'm not interested in the chemical analysis beyond a certain point. You uh, see? But, but see, I think you, once again, you're equating well, what you call materialism, I'd rather call it physicalism, with some kind of reduction, reductivism, yeah. saying that it's just these pigments. I'm saying no, because the same conception might be realized in some other painting with rather different materials. It's the form or shape of it that gives it its beauty, so it's just, I mean, Hillary Putnam used a very simple example. He said, well, if you want to explain why this round object moves through a hoop of radius slightly greater than that, but a square with mm -hmm. that side would not move through the hoop, 
you appeal not to the ultimate particles that these things are made of, but to the laws of geometry, mm-hmm. laws of form. But that, that's not because at every, in every case, the sphere isn't made of some particles. It's just that a lot of different materials are, are governed by the same laws. So the law is explanatory in general in a way that the reduction to the ultimate material particles is not. Uh, so everything in life is like that, I think, is multiply realizable in different sets of particles. So it's the form or shape that is most relevant to explaining beauty, emotion, and so on. But right. that doesn't but I, mean, yeah. I, that I don't want us to go round in a circle. Sometimes I think that Sometimes I think it's really about moving back from philosophy for a moment. It's about one, what I would call one spiritual temperament that yeah. there are. So for example, if you look at the iconoclasm controversy, right? And so that really is about the evaluation of matter. There are, there are certain, there was a certain spiritual call it style or current for which matter was a huge obstacle to the spirit. And so the uh, the icons had to be destroyed because they could never capture mm-hmm. the sublimity of what they uh, 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 putatively represented. And then there was another spiritual style or temperament that thought the opposite and thought that matter is, in fact, our only avenue of access to something mm-hmm. else. And in fact, as you know, Wallace Stevens would count as, as someone like that. Mm-hmm. And um, but. But the, but it, at least both those temperaments and all the religions have both these temperaments. I mean, it's, you know, every great tradition has both these temperaments. Well, and even Aquinas, who had some of each, uh-huh. he defined beauty as that which, having been seen, pleases. So in terms of, yes. the, of a physical organ, he defines yes. beauty. Well, what else could beauty be? And, and so I, I guess... I think that the demand... You know what the great thing about Aquinas? Whenever people mention Aquinas in this context, the really complicating thing about Aquinas is that he also was the great rationalist thinker who believed that a painting spoke to him in Naples. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know. Oh, yeah. There is, and it is so beautifully... Com- and it's that, it's that complication that I'm trying to get at. So I guess you don't... I mean, I don't want to say you no longer find things beautiful in the way you once did before you hit upon your physicalist position, because I know you are a great connoisseur of beauty. And, and I, I know, I mean, that do we, on the other hand, do you feel that when you're at the opera and you're here listening to, I don't know, the quintet from the first act of Cozy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you hear that, aren't you transported to a place beyond your body and the singer's bodies? Or are you content to think what a lovely physical product? Well, I think it, it, it expands my emotional awareness. Yeah. Um, and the emotional awareness uh, is rooted, seated in, in the brain. But as I say, it's not reducible. So we don't need to go that again yeah but, but yeah i mean it, it expands me as a as an essentially physical being that i'm capable mm-hmm. now of understanding things i didn't understand before mm-hmm. and i think that's true of singers that what they think they're doing i actually think by the way as an amateur singer that i sometimes understand new things by realizing them mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. body yeah, I can you know it, especially because yeah. anger is an emotion i have a difficult relationship with mm-hmm. i argue against it yeah, I but know. i also i also don't 
feel it very much, except in small, irritating instances like air air travel and all that. But um, big things, I, I really don't feel retributive. Uh, so I understand. I, it just happens that my voice is a dramatic soprano. And so the parts that I do, I was just this morning singing Orsaiki Lonore from Don Giovanni, oh. you know, are all the angry ones. And I've understood a lot more about yes. anger by my body taking yes, yes. a certain configuration. Yes. Now, of course, um, you don't always do that, but I think... It, no, but I, your point is well taken. I mean, the great art historian Meyer Shapiro he came to his great deep understandings of modern painting by picking up a brush and actually trying to paint like some of the painters he was teaching. Oh, wow. And That's so, no, there, he was a painter, but and part of his pedagogy was to, was to, he knew something of the experience. I mean, you know, and so, yes, I think that's, that's certainly true. It's not available to many people. Uh, it's not, I, I guess my question to you is, if we were, were to agree that modern culture has, well, as you say, we, there are still a lot of idiocies at loose in the land, but, but, um, but if we were to agree upon the acceptance and, and even celebration of the physical element of human life or the physical dimension, or what is it about the, let's call it the idealist insistence or the spiritual insistence upon something non-physical that offends you or turns you off? In other words, because mm -hmm. the burden of proof is to a certain extent on you too. And so well, what is it that what is it that you recoil from? I mean, Plato well, is easy to recoil from. But. Part of it is the bad uses that have been made of it. All right. Yeah. And as a woman, I have to say, a mm -hmm. central way in which women have been put down throughout mm -hmm. history and thought to be not capable of philosophy and so mm -hmm. is because they seem to be hyperbodily. They're connected mm -hmm. to childbirth and so mm -hmm. forth and so mm -hmm. forth. And so women, mm -hmm. you know, crazy Otto Weininger, who even mm -hmm. said the woman is the body of the right. man. And he, he thought women could only escape and be people if they right. gave up uh, sex and reproduction. So I, it's, And then he read what he wrote and he killed himself. Yes. Well, right. But I think there's a lot of that. The shrinking from the body leads mm -hmm. to a shrinking from women's role in the culture. So as a woman in philosophy, I guess I'm definitely... Uh, drawn away from that kind of thing. But I think more, you know, now we, suppose we said everyone now believes that that's wrong and bad. Right. I think that it's just that I can't believe it's true. Yeah. I don't yeah. see that there can be a non-physical substance. Yeah, I just I understand that. Yeah. what it would be or where it would be. I would love it if I could think, oh, there's this non-physical bit of Martha that could go off and live a life after death. Uh, it would be very consoling, I guess, if I thought it could be. Is, mathema is mathematics the easy case or the hard case for you? Uh, well, you know, I think it's like. Because with mathematics, we don't just invent it. When people speak of discovering uh, things in mathematics, which implies in some way that they, in quotation marks, are already there in quotation marks. Do you know what I mean? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes. I mean, we. I, I'm not. I don't do much math. I've never been interested right. in math. Um, and the controversies between Platonists and non-Platonists right. in math, I, I just don't really know how to adjudicate them. But I, I would say it's a human practice. I would be a kind of Wittgensteinian yeah. about yeah. math. And, you know, say it's something human beings do. 
and nonetheless wonderful for that. Mm -hmm. And of course, the things that the laws of mathematics are, can't be perfectly instantiated by any particular substance that's here. So in that sense, they're abstractions away from the complications of particular substances. But that's true of law in general. When we write a constitution, we're not, it, we're in some way basing it on real life things, but we're trying to set up a norm or a template yeah. that isn't re reducible to a particular set of events. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it's an attempt to build abstract templates that are useful for dealing with the recalcitrant real objects that are in the world. Right, that's well put. Uh, let's go back to your quasi-political um, reflections on this because they're very interesting. My question to you would be this. You're absolutely persuasive in your argument that the denial of the body was complicit in the subordination of certain particular bodies and that it worked out into certain particular historical forms having to do with power. And I, I think that's absolutely right. But my question to you is, would a further emphasis on the body, would that relieve us of that political um, sin or would it actually increase it? In other words, mm -hmm. do we want women, whereas women were once subordinated, because they were deemed to be more or less entirely corporeal and nothing intellectual could be expected of them, would an analysis of women that sees them as primarily corporeal, a kind of progressive physicalism of the kind that you're describing, would that, is, is that, is that precise? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be more emancipatory in some way to recognize um, universal qualities in all people that rise above corporeal differences and admit that there that that and you could call it whatever you want the citizen the soul the self you can call it banana you can call it whatever you want but wouldn't that be a more uh, a more certain way of of going after equality well look i think we certainly shouldn't say that women are primarily corporeal and not say the same thing about men. That of course, no, that goes without um, saying, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, of course, in some time, times in the history of Christianity, there has been something emancipatory in saying everyone has an immortal soul. Actually, in India, right. Martya often thinks of the role of the Christians in India as, to some extent, emancipatory. That's a great, that's right, yeah. Everyone has an equal soul. We're that's all right. Equal. There's parity. It's some so, so we do that. Yes. If we wanted to talk nonsense, that's what I really think. But why <laughs> should we liberate ourselves by talking nonsense? Oh, so I'd rather well, go in the other direction and say, well, you know, we are all, all in it together. Now, of course, the other problem is that I'm very interested in our kinship to non-human animals. Yes. And so, now, we could say that every creature has a soul, and some people do indeed try to say that mm -hmm. they're certainly are both Jewish and Christian groups yes. that move in that direction. But, oh, and but ancient again, Jewish and Christian traditions, too. It's in, it's yeah. in the Talmud. Yeah. Oh, really? You have to yeah, yeah. give me references. I'll give you the sources. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, you know, I guess it's back to what I said. I, I just can't believe it. I don't see where what it would yeah. be if it's not, um, you know, some sort of ghostly ether that goes out through the mouth when you die which I can't believe in, and, and it doesn't seem that that could be very intelligent anyway. 
uh, then what on earth is it? I, I, so I don't get it. I think I might be a little pro-ghostly ether. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you are. <laughs> so I think that you also, therefore, are underrating the wonders of human biology. It is, I, I know that to say it's biology makes people think, oh, no, then a machine could do it. But, you know, it doesn't seem no, to be. No, but I, you see, I don't think that's right. I think one, one of the things, I mean, you have to be insentient not to marvel at what we now know from biology or, for that matter, from astronomy and astrophysics. I mean, it is, I mean, talk about the sublime. It's yeah. really, um, you know, the, the ancients knew nothing of the sublime because they didn't know this science. And uh, it is astonishing, but I think that conceptually, all of the astonishment at the sublimity of nature and the natural does not amount to an argument for a naturalist analysis of life. So I'm not sure that one, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's rather that we don't have any grounds for a non-naturalist account. And that the feeling that there must be something more often comes from a failure to appreciate the wondrousness of biology. Well, and from a deep desire to deny death. Yeah. The finality of death is something that no tradition has ever learned to actually accept. And yeah. so the idea that something exists that can survive death and therefore cannot be corporeal because the body is clearly what dies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and that's a, that's a colossal human predicament. Yep, and even the Christians, though, did think you had to ultimately have reincarnate, have the you know the incarnation of the souls before they could function like people. Mm-hmm. So there had to be the last judgment where they would mm-hmm. somehow get a special kind of body, and um, you know all these crazy theories. Well, one thing in religion that would support your your approach actually is the most bizarre and nonsensical belief of all, which is in the resurrection of the dead. Because there is some idea, if you look at that idea, from your standpoint, it would be some sort of backdoor insistence that in order to resume life as it should be, meaning in paradise or after the redemption by the Messiah, we're going to need our bodies again. We're going to need our bodies again. That's what Aquinas says, that if the, the separated souls if they can't perceive for which you need a body, mm-hmm. they can't really see anything and their understanding of things, therefore, would be very confused. Right. So they've yeah. got to have the body. But um, Right, and the yeah. souls are in Dante's hell, not the bodies. The souls yeah, but of course, his description of them is so yes. wonderful. Yes. And, and yes. he allows them with physicality in order yes. to describe them. Yes. yes. So yeah, I think it is the desire to deny death, but I think to deny death you have to be able to imagine coherently what that continuity could mm-hmm. look like. How yeah, it could be that. continuous. Now, of course, cloning I get. Yeah. I, don't think, I don't think that cloning actually would prolong your life. I think it would be a different right. life. And I think right. people who try to... I just heard something about some person who actually cloned her cat and was so disappointed because <laughs> the temperament of the cloned cat was a different temperament from her Oh, my cat. God. But of course it would be because it would yeah. be by a different mother, et cetera, et cetera. I, I wrote a short story about cloning once in a volume that Cass Sunstein and I edited. It, it was about a woman who loses her lover and she decides to create a clone of him and bring it up as her own child. And of course, 
it's a tr tragic story yes. because the child doesn't grow up to be at all like the lover because right. she's the mother and she's a very different mother. And so she ends up being heartbroken and it's bad for the kid because he's supposed to be somebody else and not the person he is. Which well, is maybe that's worth a point worth, worth ending on because one thing that in your physicalist analysis and in your insistence upon the corporeal analysis, um, one thing that shouldn't be lost is the fact that even though everybody is every space body is the same, every body is also different. And yes. that there are, um, you know, there's a wonderful saying in the Talmud trying to show that God is greater than ordinary kings, because when an ordinary king mints a new coin, every coin is alike. But when God creates and created a species, each one is different. And your corporealist analysis could include that in the sense that, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think we have to do it not just for humans, where we're pretty ready to see each individual as different. Mm -hmm, right. for, for every animal. animal. Yeah. Because uh, the more we get to know a species, like dogs, as you said, we see that each one is different. The individuality and of animals is, yeah, yeah. The individuality of, I mean, Franz Duval just wrote a very good book about emotions of animals called Mama's Last Hug about a, a, a chimp that he was a friend of. And she mm. was a very particular being. She had a temperament and she had a role in the community. So he wanted us to see her as a particular, and I think mm. she succeeded very well. Uh, everyone who lives with a kind of animal for a long time gets to know the particularity of them. And it's just that for some animals, it's so difficult to do that. Martha, dear friend, thank you. This was, it was wonderful to talk with you about the things that we always talk about. Yeah, it's so good to talk to you, yeah. Leon. It's, so, it's been so long to actually talk to you. I don't know when, the, yes. I, I guess a little bit in Washington when I gave that lecture, but otherwise we just haven't sat down to talk. I know, well, and this will, uh, Celeste will edit this out, but I will be in Chicago early in May. Agnes Callard oh. has asked me to do a night owl Oh, wonderful. Nights. That's such a great thing. Yeah. Isn't it great that Chicago is the place where undergraduates oh. flock to do philosophy? Including in my son. I'm telling you, Chicago is still Chicago. It is, it mm -hmm. is a sanctuary. I'm it trying to recruit sanctuary. new people that we voted to hire now. And oh. I think they need to understand that. that it's just not like... It is not. That's correct. That's correct. Well, and anyhow, it, well, maybe I, I can see you then. But I do want to say the journal is so wonderful. And I'm oh, so happy... You, and it's just such a gift to the culture. Well, I thank mean, you, at love. At the time when everything is, oh, you know, sinking. And the New York Review of Books has gotten a little bit better, I have to say. It's had yeah. a big decline, and now it's come back again a little. And I did not particularly, well, I worked with them for a long time on this yeah. piece on animal cognition. Yeah. But in any case, um, Liberties is a special thing, and it's really wonderful. I'm going to ask Celeste to keep these remarks of yours at, in yeah, the in the podcast because, because I'm just so blown over, uh, blown away. I guess yeah. I should say by each new issue. I, I really think it's I'm terrific. so pleased, Martha. That means the world to me. And uh, it's as I said, I'm down for a couple of operas, but you're going to be back in our pages because okay. it's inconceivable without you, my love. You've got okay. No, absolutely. I'd be very proud to be in your pages. I'm. It's a, a real privilege.
thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you liked it and you are not yet subscribed to Liberties, head over to libertiesjournal.com and correct that condition. Thank you.